Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. This is New Books in Psychology. I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte in Miami. Today, we're speaking with David A. Trelevin about his new book, Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, Practices for Safe and Transformative Healing, published in 2018 by Norton. David A. Trelevin is an educator and psychotherapist whose work focuses on the intersection of trauma, mindfulness, and social justice. Trained in counseling psychology at the University of British Columbia, he received his doctorate in psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies. He's been studying mindfulness for 20 years and has a private practice in the San Francisco Bay Area. He also hosts the podcast, The Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Uh, David, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eugenio. Happy to be here. So let's start with some basic questions. Um, Since your book is about trauma and mindfulness, first, what exactly is mindfulness? Yeah, well, we could just spend the whole hour here (laughs) talking about mindfulness. (laughs) Um, I define mindfulness in a relatively traditional way, um, which is sustained present moment awareness. And this is this ability that we have. I think of it as a competency that we can develop to know basically what's happening when it's happening. Uh, sometimes in psychology, I feel like it's referred to as dual awareness. And it's a you know it's an amazing for those that are clinicians or working with um, uh, people generally who are listeners. You know that's a it's a really helpful tool for someone to work with um, in their lives and especially around stress. You know that realization that they might be ruminating in thought and the ability to kind of pull back a little bit and get a, get a certain perspective on the present moment. So that's how I define mindfulness. And I, I mentioned that about it being a traditional definition because, you know, mindfulness is often um, talked about as many different things as it's grown in popularity. So mindfulness is sometimes people refer to mindfulness as uh, meditation and synonymous with other practices, but that's how I refer to it, that ability to know what's happening when it's happening. But what I imagine is an important point has to do with the focus of one's attention, right? So when you say that it's 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 being in the present moment, I, I imagine it includes not just an awareness of what is going on around one, but also what is going on inside of one. Yes, definitely. This is where it gets really interesting with trauma. So Yes, mindfulness to me is the ability to direct our attention, um, similar to maybe a flashlight, that we are in some choice and agency about where we're directing our attention. And then when it comes to trauma, as I've learned in my own more qualitative research over the years, where we're directing our attention or where we're having a client direct their attention will be very important in terms of their own skills around self-regulation. Or said another way, if someone is chronically directing their attention to something that feels overwhelming, both inside or outside the body, that can be overwhelming and actually unhelpful for their own process around healing and recovery. So 
I think of mindfulness very much as like the ability to also direct one's attention. And I'll just say one quick thing is that meditation, which is where we cultivate mindfulness or a traditional practice, often has to do with what you just said is, is being choiceful about directing your attention towards maybe an anchor or maybe something external to you. So that's part of the training, I think, as well. You know, and I really appreciate a point that you make in the book, subtle but important, that mindfulness and meditation aren't exactly synonymous, right? I, I think you explain it that mindfulness is more perhaps a, a, a stance, um, a willingness that one has to, to, to be in the present moment. Meditation is more of a practice, a, a tool, uh, one of many ways perhaps that one can cultivate mindfulness, but mindfulness is not something that needs to be restricted to meditation. Do I have it right? Yeah, well, it felt important to be really clear. I mean, be clear with you and also whenever I'm giving talks on this topic. You know, I called the book Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, and really it could have also been Trauma-Sensitive Meditation. And my general approach academically and otherwise, well, really for the book, was to say, what would contemporary trauma professionals or even um, uh, trauma experts, those who are studying how to recover from trauma, what would they say about how meditation is being practiced in a contemporary way? That's really, that's kind of a launching point for this, all of this work is what would be the best practices if we're asking someone who's traumatized to be meditating? And I wanted to be clear with the distinction that I'm not saying in any way that mindfulness is unhelpful. Actually, it's profoundly helpful when it comes to trauma, which we might talk about here. But the practice of mindfulness, often referred to as meditation, kind of the vehicle to cultivate that muscle of attention, um, that is where people can run into trouble. Uh, meditation being, you know, often a, a formal practice where we're often seated, sometimes walking. Uh, and going through some very basic instructions to cultivate um, mindful attention and some sustained awareness over time. So I wanted to distinguish between mindfulness and meditation um, up front. So because the book is for people who have experienced trauma and have struggled with meditation um, or, or with professionals who work with individuals who have endured trauma and, and have this struggle, perhaps it's important to clarify number one, how does someone know if, if they qualify as traumatized and then what kinds of, what kinds of problems do they have when, when meditating or what kinds of problems does meditation cause for them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. So the book is, the book was entitled really the work more generally is for anyone who is asking another person to pay close and sustained attention to their inner world. That's, that's really the main focus. And so even though I was directing the book primarily towards, for example, meditation teachers who were asking people to really attend to their inner world, it also referred, it also, you know, had some relevance for say yoga teachers, or it could be a, a mental health practitioner coach who's asking people to kind of turn their attention inward. And it also turned out that people, as you said, who have had their own experiences of trauma, who are interested in the topic, they've also you know, become interested in the work. And you know, I'm not saying that I have it all figured out. I mean, this is a massive topic. 
about how mindfulness and trauma intersect, but I have been curious about it for a number of years now to say, okay, what would we need to know? What would be the best practices? And the question that you just asked is a massive one about, well, where can people run into trouble? And then I think you also asked, well, how, how would we know that someone is traumatized? So why don't I start with the, why don't I start with the, the, the question about where people can run into trouble just really briefly, and we can see where we go from there. Sure. But the, the, the headline here is that there's a number of approaches to trauma healing, um, one being a methodology named somatic experiencing, which some listeners might have heard of. It was developed by um, Peter Levine. And this is uh, an approach to trauma recovery. And one of the headlines of this approach to trauma recovery work is that if you ask someone to pay close and sustained attention to traumatic stimuli, and by that I mean intrusive thoughts, um, dysregulating memories or flashbacks or sensations in, you know, say I lived through a trauma and I experienced this ongoing kind of clenching in my stomach, that when you're working with someone who is experiencing trauma symptoms, if you ask them to go kind of directly at that stimuli, if they overattend to that stimuli, they can end up being overwhelmed. So for example, when I first was doing my own personal trauma work um, inside of this methodology, the first person I worked with said, I want you to tell me what's working for you in your life. And that was to- that as someone who's trained in um, psychology, that was foreign to me because I'm used to saying what's wrong, what's hurting. And they said, what's working? And I said, well, I, you know, that's not why I'm here. <laughs> I want to talk about what's hard. And the practitioner said, your ability to be with what feels resourcing and good to you is going to support your ability to be with what's difficult and what was traumatic. Yeah. And so um, that is that that kind of overarching philosophy that we don't always lead people directly into the eye of the storm when it comes to trauma. You know, I, I applied that over to meditation and said, well, what would happen? Just imagine if you're a new meditator, you come to practice, you have trauma, and by following basic instructions, you end up kind of face-to-face with some of the more intense stimuli that you're experiencing. And my question was, does the person know how to work with it? And if not, does the meditation teacher know how to help work with it? And that was the launching point around the work is people can end up kind of hyper-focused on the stimuli and it's, it's unhelpful in practice. They can end up overwhelmed. And um, I wanted to make sure that people knew what to do if they bumped into their trauma. And, and what I really appreciate about this book and about your uh, shining a light on this issue is that I think uh, patients who have endured trauma and who are working with a practitioner who uses mindfulness as part of part of the work, and I'll I'll say I I'm one of those people who uses it. I I think the tendency can be sometimes when when such a patient says. Oh, but I can't. I can't really meditate because if I if I focus too long on on this sensation and this part of my body or on this this part of my experience, it, it's overwhelming. It's uncomfortable, and I I think sometimes the tendency has been not to dismiss it, but to say, oh, but that's part of the work. You need to stay with it. Try try to endure it. I think in the book you talk about how 
you were told when you went on, on, I think your retreat, just stick with it, just stick with it. And it sounds like what you're saying in your book and here is actually, no, they're, these patients are communicating something important that they're calling for, for an important adjustment. So can, can you tell us like experientially, what, what does the patient feel that, that they describe as overwhelming? Like what's the difference between, for instance, feeling uncomfortable because one is meditating and having an, un, a, an experience that's just unfamiliar and uncomfortable. What's the difference between that and, and suffering the kind that, that signals up oh, something wrong is happening and, and we need to make an adjustment. Yes. Right. This is, I'm so glad we're here. This is um, one of, to me, one of the most dynamic aspects of this conversation is when do you lean in? When do you back off? And, you know, I could ask you just as easily about, well, what are the signs and where, have, what have you been trained in? To, uh, what would signify to you that it's a moment to say, to back off. And when would you encourage a client to lean in and stick with it? And why I'm glad you asked this is um, sometimes people can mishear my interest in this work as, as somehow advocating for uh, avoidance. And uh, actually quite the contrary, what I want to advocate for is a balance, I think, in, in what you just said of exposure of really having people lean in to difficulty. And that's where to me, one-to-one clinical work can be so powerful. And at the same time, as, as you just revealed with my own personal story, not just uh, coming back and regressing to very basic instructions where, um, you know, uh, you're a hammer and everything is a nail and we just need to keep being mindful and take it back to the cushion and st- hang in. Uh, no matter no matter what happens, come hell or high water. So I, I when I first when this book came out, which was I think about like a couple of years ago now, uh, I think there was less awareness around the potential tripwires of trauma with meditation, um, and now there's more of an awareness. So so that lands us on exactly what you said. Well, well how would we know? And I'll give my uh, brief answer, then we'd love to hear yours. Is uh, there's a, do you know Vygotsky's zone of proximal development by any chance? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but our, so our listeners may not, so you yeah, might sure, want to. It was newer for me, but uh, you know, these three different circles, and I've seen them term different ways, um, but three different circles, the inner circle being something like we could call a safe zone, uh, a second, second circle out being kind of like a learning zone, and then the third circle out being a zone of overwhelm, uh, a place where... Um, it's almost, it's too much. So, you know, when that gets applied to education, um, there's this balance, even with us right now here on the podcast, that we're, we're trying to find an optimal pace um, and level of complexity that has us both in learning. But if you were just firing references at me and topics that I didn't understand, you know, I'd get overwhelmed. Or if I was talking too fast, you're in overwhelm or the listeners wouldn't be able to hang in. So there's this sweet spot that we're working for. And I think this is applicable over to trauma is um, there's actually in some meditation classes and trauma sensitive meditation classes, they'll put those three circles up in the room and they'll say to a meditator, Hey, I'm going to ask you to do some things that might stretch you into your learning zone. But if at any point you feel overwhelmed and you need to back off, you're welcome to do that. 
Now, really briefly to your question, well, how would people know? That's going to be different for everyone. Um, that could be a sense of hypervigilance, heart racing. Um, the flashbacks are too much. Um, I actually can't stay present with my experience. Um, I feel a sense of dread, threat, or terror. I think there's a whole bunch of different um, symptoms that people can experience, including dissociation, for example, like I'm numb now. So everyone needs to find their markers. And I'm happy if we want to dig in here into the specificities of it, let's go there. But I do think there are thresholds that we can learn to then learn when we can just back off in the service of regulation um, and support over time. Yeah, I, I want to get into the details um, and particularly in, in, into dissociation. It's not the first of the five principles that you describe as, as constituting the adjustments that you recommend practitioners make to mindfulness practice for these patients. But you invited me to think about, you know, how would I know if, if I needed to back off with the patient? And, you know, part of why I ask is, is because I'm still struggling, but I, I, I can think of, I can think of one patient who I had developed a kind of aversion to mindfulness because in his prior experience with a different practitioner in a different treatment setting had found it too, too triggering and had said, Oh, I, I, I can't, you don't understand. I can't, if, if I focus on my body too much, if I do grounding, right. Um, he used that word, I'm going to dissociate. And so it might be useful for our listeners to explain, well, you know, what do we mean when we talk about dissociation, but also uh, I'm interested to know, since that's one of the, one of the obstacles that you take on in your book, you know, how do you, how do you even get a patient who experiences dissociation in mindfulness meditation to even give it a try again let's be honest you know um to even be willing to to give it w one more shot with with the adjustments that you recommend what do you think it's um i i've had a similar experience actually um with different clients and patients that i worked with where they said you know any kind of if i turn my attention inward i'm going to check out or uh, I don't, I don't want to do that. And it just kind of brings up the whole point of the work for me, um, which I try to address with patients would be, well, why, you know, that question, why feel, why for you, maybe just if I, if I can ask you quickly, like, why would you, with this patient that you were working with, do you, for the intervention to ask him or this person to pay attention to the body, like what was, I don't know your training, but what has you feel like that that would be a good idea or that would actually support him? Do you know what sure, I mean? sure. I mean, I, I thought, you know, and I've been trained in psychoanalysis, but I've learned um, recently some about somatic experiencing. And I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that. I mean, I, I thought, well, grounding, focusing on one's physical sensations, which I think of as sometimes being literally focus on your body in the chair, your, your, your feet on the ground, focus on your breath. Can you feel, can you feel your arms? Can that, that is grounding that that can actually help to stabilize a person to help them feel less dissociated. But it turns out for certain patients, it maybe provokes more dissociation. And I'll be honest, I don't, I'm still struggling to understand, you know, when is that the case and why? Yeah, it's a great, well, it's good that we're talking. <laughs> this is off <laughs> my edge, you know, too. Um, because I, I think that uh, my research over the years 
has been partly trying to uh, grapple with this question that you just asked. Like, well, you know, how could something as innocuous as a grounding practice or seemingly innocuous uh, as, as grounding or, or meditation, for example, how could that be dysregulating for someone? And I remember having my own skepticism and being curious about it. And so that's been uh, my, my part of my inquiry and in trying to understand using somatic experiencing, for example, as what was termed a, a hermeneutic lens to really say, well, what would SE or what would somatic experiencing say about this question that you're asking? So let's, um, maybe I'll, to unpack the dissociation part and then to, to address that question, you know, some people, I think for the majority of people, the intervention that you mentioned about asking someone to pay attention to sensations of their feet or um, anywhere else in the body, you know, they'll be supportive. That will be regulating and bring them back. But then for others, uh, that invitation might end up co connecting them with traumatic stimuli that they aren't prepared to be present with. And, you know, for those that have done any kind of study or even just lay study around trauma, what, one of the most important aspects to understand is that trauma lives on with post-traumatic stress, yeah, often in the body and often through sensations. So, you know, the top, you know, top five or 10 books around trauma all have the word body in it. Like the body remembers, the body keeps the score, the body bears the burden. The body is really important to understand. And that's why, as you're saying, with getting into some somatic work around trauma, I think is so important. So I think that the headline here is that if you're asking someone struggling with trauma to do something as basic as a grounding exercise, there's a chance that you're putting them in front of uh, a, a stimuli or an internal sensation that might cause them to feel like the trauma is happening again. And maybe this starts to unpack um, why you ask, like, why would this happen? Just very one technical reason is that we will impulsively or reflexively orient to that which we consider dangerous or traumatic, which is, if you think about it, a really smart, a really smart, intelligent response to take, keep ourselves safe. So if my heart's racing and you ask me to feel my feet, there's a good chance that I'll end up just feeling my racing heart. And that's not bad news for a patient, especially if I was with you as my clinician. Um, but if we're in meditation practice, uh, maybe I don't know what to do. And I just keep paying attention to my heart. I feel overwhelmed, feels like the trauma is happening again. And I kind of circle the drain there. So we can get hooked on really quickly um, to trauma. And that's one of the, that's one of the main issues. And I imagine that part of why it's, it becomes so scary for the patient is because as they focus on their body, as they focus on their physical sensations, yes, it's likely that one of those physical sensations, one of those bodily zones may be connected to an earlier trauma, right, right. but, but they don't know it. That's right. You that's know, right. They may right. not have been gotten to a place in their work yet where they know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They, they've made that unconscious bodily connection explicit verbally. So they don't, they don't know why focusing on their thighs or on their arms, which may have been the site of some kind mm -hmm. of trauma. They don't know why that freaks them out. They don't know why that dysregulates them. It just does. And then, it, does this jive with your experience? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're, you're right on where mindfulness can be so powerful for someone who's having the experience that you're naming is that 
post-traumatic stress often means that we're experiencing the present moment through a body which is re-experiencing trauma. And at its worst, you, know, you gave the thighs as an example, say that there was a, you know, some kind of trauma that happened there. At its worst, we can't distinguish the fact that we're having a traumatic reminder of something that was overwhelming in the present moment. So let me give you an example of a client that I worked with who, whenever this client was asked to uh, kind of go inside, notice what's happening emotionally, they would feel this intense contraction in their chest, in their lungs. They feel like they couldn't breathe. Now, uh, at worst, what would happen is the client would start to panic and feel like, uh, I can't breathe. This is so intense. It's going to get worse. It's never going to go away. This is always going to be here. And uh, they'd kind of end up in a really dysregulated and painful place. Now, with mindfulness practice over time, this client would end up saying, I'm feeling this, this, this sensations of the tight chest. I'm aware of the traumatic experiences that are connected to this, but I'm also aware, this is the dual awareness component, that I'm sitting with David in, in his office. It's 2019 and that I'm having this experience in the present moment. There was some separation from the traumatic stimuli and that both could be held concurrently. And that opened the door to a lot of freedom for this person. And that's where I get pretty excited about what mindfulness can offer trauma survivors. Whereas trauma pulls us into the past, mindfulness is helping us ground in the present in a different way. So I know I notice you say over time, does that mean that with this patient, you didn't abandon the mindfulness. You you found a way to help help him stay with it, but in a way that was tolerable. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. Um, to me, one of the frames that I use and I use in the book was around integration for trauma. That we all live through painful, overwhelming experiences, some that we could call traumatic, and ideally we're able to metabolize and integrate the experience, whether through a cathartic response, we have a good cry, we are able to process it with a close friend, family member, a therapist. Ideally, we can really integrate the experience and be stronger on the other side. But when we're talking about post-traumatic stress, uh, this model of, it's what I appreciate is that it often ends up being a disintegrated experience. It was too much for the mind and body to actually metabolize in a moment. So with trauma, you know, it really challenges this idea that time can heal all wounds. We get stuck, we get profoundly stuck. And in a session with someone, the work to me is that, yeah, as you said, it is over time that someone starts to get a little bit of distance. Maybe they can feel that terror that's in their chest or is in their body in a different way or the, uh, is able to tolerate and be present with uh, a painful memory, but not so much that it actually overwhelms the system. Let me give you one quick metaphor. Uh, Babette Rothschild, who some listeners might know, she wrote a book called The Body Remembers, and she uses the metaphor of a soda bottle. So she shakes up a bottle of soda and she says, this is really the body and the nervous system with trauma. It gets sort of, fa- it gets uh, very charged Um, almost spring-loaded because of our fight-flight response. And she said, you wouldn't open the bottle all at once. 
the actually the way to integrate this level of charge and if you can imagine it is to crack the bottle and you hear that little but you wouldn't open it all at once because that literally creates flooding and overwhelm and so with trauma we're going we're cracking it we're putting it back a little bit more and then over time as you said we we can actually integrate um, overwhelming experiences you make a, a bunch of great points in your book uh We've gotten to some of them. Um, we've talked about the importance of working with dissociation, of doing what you call staying within the window of tolerance. There's an, there's another chapter devoted to the importance of understanding the social context for trauma. And I, I appreciated this because I, it's not often that it, in literature on trauma that you hear about trauma as, as starting at the level of the social and and the cultural we often think about trauma as something that happens um at the hands of another person um but we don't think about it at the cultural level can you understand can you tell us your thoughts about this and why it's important in this kind of practice yeah um i'm happy to well my uh, my background actually my original clinical work as a psychotherapist was with uh, male sex offenders when i was in in i'm originally from canada and I spent uh, 10 years in British Columbia and my, yeah, that was my work was individual and group work with men who had uh, committed sex crimes. And I was working with the BC, uh, British Columbia forensic commission. And while I was doing this work and getting, you know, quite uh, interested in how to work um, with trauma and accountability and a study came out that was commissioned uh, that it turned out that about 92% of the, men that we were working with had themselves uh, been victims of sexual violence in their lives. And this was an entry point for me to um, not just think about trauma as an individual tragedy, which it is, but to start to pull back and try to understand the larger social conditions that will shape people's experience um, of trauma and harm. So, I've just had some some great teachers over the years of people who were making explicit connections um, between the personal and the, the social, I'd say, to, to put it in a really simple way. Just just to give one example, you know, think we talk about traumatic accidents. You know, people will live through traumatic accidents in the world, and that is something that will affect an individual in a profound way. But if we pull back a little bit farther, we can see that even something as seemingly innocuous as, a, as an accident is taking place inside of a social context that will leave some people more vulnerable to trauma. So World Health Organization did a study that found that the majority of traumatic accidents in the world were happening to people who were poor and working class because they were often exposed to more dangerous work and labor. And so it was a reminder for me that in any trauma that we're working with, there's always going to be a whole history that's present. And the reason I included that chapter was to say the more work that we have done to um, understand the ways that trauma is shaped by social context, I think the more effective we can be as a practitioner um, or clinician or meditation teacher, not that we need to be pushing any politics on anyone, uh, but just that we have an awareness that when I'm working with someone, uh, there's going to be a whole, you know, history that they're experienced that they're experiencing, 
um, based on who they are in the world um, and their identities. So that's why that's why I included it. And does that change how you actually speak to the patient? Does that change how you actually deliver the intervention? Yeah, I so appreciate that question because in a very practical way, it's like, well, what would that actually mean? So, you know, I'll give one example. Say I'm working cross gender. So, you know, I, I'm a man. And if I'm working with someone who identifies as a woman, and, um, and I'm aware that they're in a society that will often more than me objectify their bodies in a sexual way. So you know, I'm bringing in some analysis of understanding how gender plays out. And if I was doing some kind of, I was you know, trained in body-centered psychotherapy. So say I'm doing a practice with a female client around um, opening up their chest and being taking up more space in the world. That if if I didn't have some uh, understanding and empathy about the fact that asking someone to take up more space in a body that's female will invite potentially more you know, targeting, more attention inside of the culture that that we're we're in, uh, at least the particular one that I'm in here. So. Uh, to me, that doesn't mean that I'm going to have an explicit conversation with my patient about um, what this means or my own politic around it. But I do want to have that always in the background that the interventions that I'm bringing in are, are always happening in a larger social context. Can I be sensitive to that? When is it strategic to mention that and acknowledge um, what this might mean for the person? But all, all intended to be a way to empower the person to be in choice and just let them know that I'm not, you know, I'm not um, being absent-minded or blind to the dynamics that are playing out once they leave my office. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, we're almost out of time. I wanted to, I wanted to ask you what you've been up to since the book. I'm, I'm aware the book came out uh, a couple of years ago and. I'm wondering how has your knowledge changed uh, ever since the book came out? Have your ideas changed? Mm-hmm. Oh, thanks for asking. That that time flew by. <laughs> um, yeah the the book was very much an entry point into opening up this conversation about the relationship between mindfulness, meditation, and trauma. And since then, I've mostly been focused on um, online education to, I was doing some travel, but then COVID happened. And so especially this last year, it's really shifted to a lot of webinars around the topic. So uh, I ended up taking this whole, this whole thing online. So did the podcast, as you mentioned, I'm really enjoying getting to talk to some of the meditation teachers that I grew up with. Uh, like Sharon Salzberg came on last episode, who's a great meditation teacher and we got to really get into it around trauma. So I'm enjoying the podcast. And then um, we also did a um, pretty comprehensive online course and online training because meditation teachers were coming to me after the book and saying, hey, I really want to become trauma-informed in my meditation teaching. How can I do that? So we set up a, an online course, which has been really fun because it's just so dynamic and people bring questions that I haven't thought about. Um, we get into, for example, we didn't we didn't touch on this, but how would we know the difference between intense concentration and dissociation? Like, there's mm-hmm. so many nuances. There's so many places to dig into. Um, so that's where I've been focused is the online thing. And um, if folks want to go deeper, uh, we have a, there's a free webinar on my website which which really gets into more of the principles of the practice and also gives people some some concrete takeaways of what you can actually do in your practice or teaching. So there's a free webinar if people want to go and kind of take the next step into the work. 
Sure. I'll make sure to put your website up when I post the episode, but can you tell us what is your website? And also if someone is interested in the course, how do they sign up for that? Yeah, it's all on the website. So website is um, davidtrelevin.com. That's T-R-E-L-E-A-V-E-N.com. And uh, it's it's all on there. You can see the course. We had a bunch of guest faculty um, come and Tara Brock was there and Rick Hansen, who's a clinical psychologist. And uh, so it's it's all there, all the free resources. And then if people want to do paid resources, we we just my exciting news is that we just got CE uh, continuing education units, um, which is exciting for professionals who are trying to um, get their CEUs done for the year. So um, that's all, all the info is on the website. Great. Great. Thank you. Let me remind our listeners, I've been speaking to Dr. David A. Trelevin, and his book is entitled Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness, Practices for Safe and Transformative Healing. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.